I remember somebody summing up the life of Abraham by saying that Abraham lived in tents but worshipped at altars of stone. In other words, everything material in Abraham's life was ephemeral, but worship was foundational to how he lived his life. I remember another Anglican minister I know saying, indeed recently in my hearing, whenever I'm counselling anyone, I tell them, begin every day with thanking and praising God. The importance of making thanksgiving and praise and worship the foundation of our lives, the the habitual, ingrained, soaked-in attitude and disposition of our character, the importance of this, making thanksgiving and praise the foundation of our lives, cannot be overstated. Well, uh, we are looking in this series of sermons at the life of David. And we're closing in on the end of his life. Last week we heard about how and when and why David was forced to retire from being the one who led Israel's armies into battle. He retired not from kingship entirely, but from the battlefield. Our text this week begins with, David sang to the Lord the words of this song, when the Lord delivered him, from the hand of all of his enemies, and from the hand of Saul. And thereafter we get the words to a song, verses uh, verses 2 to 51, it's the words to a song. What we understand from verse 1 is that we're looking at the words to a song that David sang habitually to God, routinely, all the time, whenever he had victory from his enemies, including the many, many times God saved him from Saul, from Saul's murderous plots and from Saul's persecutions. So verses 2 to 51 give us a psalm. In fact, it's actually, it's Psalm 18, not word for word precisely identical, but but pretty close and obviously actually the same prayer. And Psalm 18 gives us the same contextual information, beginning with a subtitle that says something very similar to uh, verse 1 of our text. It says, Psalm 18, for the director of music, of David, the servant of the Lord, He sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, Lord, my strength. And thereafter, we're into pretty familiar ground. It's pretty much the same as chapter 22 of 2 Samuel. Now, David actually wrote many, many psalms. A psalm, it's worth remembering, is actually three things at once. A psalm is a song, uh, or more accurately, it's the lyrics to a song. Psalms are to be sung. Secondly, a psalm is a poem, and psalms are to be read as poetry. And thirdly, a psalm is a prayer. Words given in order that they may may be spoken to God. A psalm is a prayer to be prayed. Song, poem, prayer. 
So what we actually have here today is something very exciting. Uh, two texts, uh, chapter 22 of Second Samuel and Psalm 18, two texts that have essentially identical words but different purposes. Uh, in this case, the two purposes are distinct but interrelated. The purpose of a psalm is to teach us to pray. It is in our Bible as a resource in the expectation that the people of God will sing it and pray it individually and in congregations, learning from it the language and landscape of prayer. And for 3,000 years, this is precisely what we've been doing. We learn to pray by praying the Psalms. But the purpose of chapter 22 of Second Samuel is that we might examine and appreciate David's spirituality. We see him at prayer. What we'll be doing today is a synthesis, looking at David's spirituality, thinking about what it means for us. So let's look carefully at chapter 22 of Second Samuel. Uh, you might find it helpful to have your Bibles open in order to be able to follow along. Uh, firstly, uh, just in general, what is this song of praise of David all about? Well, a summary statement can be found in verse 4. I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise and have been saved from my enemies. David's song is a response of thanksgiving, praise and worship to God, to the Lord, in response to the Lord saving him from all of his enemies. That's what this song is all about. It begins in verses 2 and 3 with worship. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, my saviour. From violent people, you save me. The Lord, uh, sorry, David worships the Lord with poetic words that come from uh, the strongest and the safest thing that David can imagine, which is a castle on a hill, a, a mighty impregnable fortress on a high mountain. God is like that. And having begun with worship and a quick summary, David then retells the story in verses 5 to 46. And he begins by poetically describing the situations in which he found himself, what it was like to have enemies, people who hated him, people of violence hunting him and persecuting him. The, the language comes straight out of that good old-fashioned Israelite fear and loathing attached to the sea, to oceans, waves, deep torrents, deep waters. Um, the Israelites feared the ocean. It was overwhelming, completely overwhelming. And that's what it seemed like to David. He, he felt lost as though he was at death's very door, having these enemies. He felt like he was just about to die. Then verse 7 is a turning point through all of this. It's central and pivotal. It changes everything. Verse 7. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God from his temple. He heard my voice. 
My cry came to his ears. God came to his rescue. And in verses 8 to 20, God saves him. God, whose presence in all of this was, of course, invisible, God is nevertheless depicted poetically as a terrifying warrior giant. But a terrifying giant whose power is likened to the most powerful things that David can imagine. Earthquakes, volcanoes, violent thunderstorms. The earth and the oceans panic in God's presence, shaking, quaking, trembling, fleeing, running for cover. The skies split apart. There's thunder and lightning and terrible winds and torrential rain. Smoke comes from God's nostrils. His mouth is a flamethrower. Burning coals coming out of it. Um, This poetic description of the Lord as mighty warrior helps us to understand that David, in praying and asking for God's help, secured the help of one who uh, is vastly more powerful than the forces assailing David. The Lord God Almighty in the Bible is totally and completely sovereign over every conceivable power of evil or destruction, human, natural or spiritual. Verse 21 is a summary statement of a theme that David then expounds. Um, David is explaining why God saved him. Um, Verse 21 reads, The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. And in the next four verses, David goes into fine detail. He's obeyed all of God's laws. He's kept himself from sin. He hasn't strayed from God's ways. He's kept his hands clean. He's not guilty before God. So then David can say, indeed, pray, tell God in verse 25, the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. These words are troubling to many Christians, probably for two reasons. Firstly, we may feel that these words are theologically wrong. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. David must be wrong, factually, in fact, deluded in this procession of his own personal goodness. And secondly, these words are so immodest. This is completely incompatible with humility, surely. Doesn't God humble the proud but exalt the humble? And so then, when we are in prayer, when we're in the presence of God, shouldn't we start by reminding God that we are miserable sinners? Whatever happens to have mercy on me, O God, a sinner? Well, in answer, let me say that it's not one thing or the other, but probably both. Yes, David knows that he is a sinner and that it is only by the grace of God that he may stand, especially in God's presence. That is abundantly clear from from other prayers, from other psalms that David prays. But what David is doing here is not wrong. In fact, it is profound. It is right. Um, And we can do it too. Taking these words into our prayers too. 
For David here is celebrating the fact that God is a God of justice, which is to say that God is a righteous God, a God of righteousness. David trusts God, and this trust in God is manifest in his wholehearted obedience to the very best of his understanding, ability, and strength. Um, If David wasn't doing his very best to obey God's rules, that would be clear evidence of the fact that actually David was trusting not in God, but in somebody or something else to save him. But he trusts God. And what does that look like? Well, somebody who trusts God obeys God. And God vindicates the righteous. That is to say, there is justice in this world when all is said and done, because it is God's world. And when we see justice, we should praise God. God vindicates the righteous, which is to say those in right relationship with him and those who do the right thing because they're in right relationship with him, because God is righteous. And, of course, these things are 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 a shadow in, in David, but they are perfected in Christ, to which these texts point. They are perfectly true in Christ, a man without sin, who was raised for his vindication and for our justification. That is to say that we, uh, to show that we are in right relationship with God and that we do the right thing. We are clean in his sight when we put our trust in Jesus and the cross. Verses 26 to 28 follow on directly with this thought. David's celebration of God, being a God of justice, leads him to reflect further on God's character. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the devious, you show yourself shrewd. You save the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. Sometimes bad things happen to bad people. Sometimes bad things happen to bad people who have treated us badly. A cruel employer who was so abusive that actually we had to resign. But the time comes when he himself is forced to resign in disgrace, when perhaps the scope of his mismanagement, corruption and incompetence is finally revealed. And on that day we may find ourselves experiencing some kind of pleasure in this news. Pleasure to hear that his God has come up once. And that pleasure might make us feel bad. If we savour that pleasure at all, we do so privately as a a guilty pleasure. Sucked in, we say, in secret. But actually, David rejoices. Not with spite at the downfall of his enemies, but rather in the restoration of justice. And we can do that too. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. The Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. Into verses um, 29 to 43, they tell us 
how God saved David. Although God used many different means to save David on many different occasions, uh, perhaps God used the loving kindness and faithfulness of friends and family, or perhaps he used miracles of coincidence, or perhaps he used miracles of provision or protection. Um, one of the chief things that David rejoices in here now in chapter 22 is he rejoices in how God saved him through God's enabling power at work in himself, at work in David. Verse 34, <clears throat> he makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He causes me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. I pursued my enemies and crushed them. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. I crushed them completely. They could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. Um, this section, again, of David's prayer can make us feel uncomfortable for multiple reasons. Firstly, there is, again, the apparent immodesty of David's prayer. God, I was good. I was sensational. Praise God. David tells God in detail just how good he was. Pursuing, crushing, destroying them. He cut them into tiny little bits and he, he jumped on them and he stamped on them and he beat them as fine as dust and he pounded them and he trampled them like mud in the streets. Nevertheless, this is profound. And David is glorying, He's, he glories in the way in which God prepared him, trained him, equipped him, discipled him, giving him strength, endurance, skill, as well as grace and protection for the journey ahead. God also, sorry, David also glories in how it felt to move in the power of the Holy Spirit, to operate in his personal sphere of Holy Spirit giftedness. I uh, once heard a jazz musician being interviewed on the radio. Uh, he said, when I'm bad, it's all my fault. But when I'm brilliant... It has nothing to do with me at all. The missionary and Olympic athlete Eric Little said, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Whether God made you for running or for music or for administration or for teaching or for healing or for, for whatever it was that God made you, we... There is an intense pleasure to be had when we're, so to speak, in the zone, uh, operating in that special sphere of giftedness that God has prepared for each one of us. Whether the gift is what we might term natural or what we might term a gift of the Holy Spirit, either way, it's all from God. It's from God, it's for God, and it's with God. Very occasionally, uh, when I feel that God has used me in a very special way, um, perhaps uh, Jo might ask me at the end of the day, she might say, how did such and such go? 
and sometimes I will answer, I was brilliant. I'm not being immodest. If you know that you were great, there's no prize for lying about it. Without question, the whole point of this prayer is to give God the glory for saving David's hide. And we can give God the glory whilst acknowledging that actually we were great and that God used us powerfully and that felt fantastic. So David is able to rejoice in the skills and abilities that God has given him, which is truly one manifestation of God's saving work in David's life. So that's one problem with this prayer. It's apparent immodesty. There is a second problem, and that is David's apparent pleasure in violence and indeed in the death of sinners. But let's take a step back to remind ourselves as to the nature of David's ministry, what it is that God has called him to do. Under the terms of the Old Covenant, the covenant that was put in place through Moses' ministry, David's job before the Lord is to be a judge or king of Israel. He has been anointed with oil and with the Holy Spirit, anointed by God to protect the people of God from their enemies. The salvation of the world actually depends upon this very thing being done because this is foundational work to its fulfillment, the coming of Jesus of Nazareth, saviour of the world. And he comes to defeat our true enemies, sin, death and judgment, the spiritual principalities, authorities and powers, nailing them on the cross. And Jesus, raised on the third day, ascended into heaven. Jesus reigns now with the Father, with the Father placing all things under, that is, all enemies, all his enemies, all our enemies, under his feet. The Lord Jesus reigns. Let the earth rejoice. The Lord Jesus reigns. Let the nations tremble. So as difficult as this apparent uh, bloodlust can be to the modern or postmodern mind, David has an anointing to do precisely this kind of work, the work of defeating human enemies with the sword. Verse 42 is profound. Speaking of his enemies, David says, They cried for help, but there was no one to save them. To the Lord! But he did not answer them. That is to say, even when his enemies prayed to Yahweh, the God of Israel, for help, both Yahweh and David denied them mercy. Jesus said, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. 
People cannot live their lives in disobedience and, right at the last minute, plead sanctuary without repentance. I, I think that, uh, in truth, David takes no pleasure in the death of his enemies, but he takes much pleasure, again, he takes much pleasure, that what is right and just prevails. As David moves towards the end of his prayer, there remain just a few more things to say. In uh, verses 44 to 46, David pauses to consider the fact that through the attacks of violent people, his own kingdom has expanded to include now the rule of many, many neighbouring nations. This is actually something we witnessed for ourselves, didn't we? About two years ago when we looked at how when each of these neighbouring nations picked a fight with David, it always turned out that that country eventually ended up having to pay tribute to David and it came under Davidic rule. David went before our very eyes. He went from being shepherd to king and then from king he went to emperor, king of kings. David's language here, doesn't he doesn't use the language of uh, curses and blessings, but that's in a sense what he's talking about. The pattern is there. God turned curses into blessings. David didn't like being attacked, nor being overwhelmed with fear, nor thinking that he was about to die. But the plain fact of the matter is that he was substantially better off at the end than at the beginning. God turned curses into blessings for the David who trusted in him. And so in verses 47 to 51, David again moves into praise and thanksgiving and worship. The glory and honour for all the good named in this prayer goes up to God. And in response to God's goodness to him, David vows to proclaim the greatness of God publicly, to praise him among the nations, that is to say the Gentiles, that is to say the people who don't yet know God, to praise him and to sing the praises of his name in the congregation of the saints. Well, chapter 22 shows us David as a man of prayer, as a man of praise, thanksgiving and worship. Humanly speaking, we might even think of him as a prayer genius, sharing his prayers with the world. Where would we be, for example, without Psalm 23? But spiritually speaking, we understand this is from God. David, David was a prophet. Um, uh, a man through whom the Holy Spirit spoke. David's words are God's words. That David was a man of prayer. It transformed everything for Israel. And the text we'll look at next week amplifies that thought. When the ruler of a people rules in the fear of God, it is like a new day dawning. It is like sunrise on a cloudless day. The first act of leadership is prayer. Prayer kept David in touch with God. And that's foundational. And when his prayer was praise and worship and thanksgiving, when he kept his eyes on God and who God is, everything else fell into perspective. 
Well, actually, lots of people pray, and lots of people pray a lot. So how is David any different? Indeed, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, there are pagans who pray and pray and pray and who think that by uh, the, the endless stream of words they will be heard, but they don't know to whom they are speaking. In marked contrast, David knows exactly to whom he is speaking. He calls God by his personal name, Yahweh, in Hebrew, represented in our English Bibles by the word Lord, all in capitals. And David's prayer shows us that his relationship with Yahweh was highly personal. David uh, knew Yahweh and he knew that Yahweh knew him. David refers to God, to Yahweh, not simply as the source of generic salvation for the world in general, but as his personal bodyguard, protector, redeemer, deliverer. David refers to the Lord, the creator of the heavens and the earth, as my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my shield, my stronghold, my refuge, my saviour. This is the one who has intervened and saved him right from the start, from bears and lions and wolves when he was a shepherd. And then again he saved him from Goliath. And again he saved him from Saul. And again he saved him from Doag the Edomite. Um, saved him from Achish and the Philistines, the Ziphites, the Amalekites, the Israelites, Absalom, Michal, daughter of, of Saul, the kings of Zobah, Damascus, Hamath, Edom, etc., etc., etc. God just kept on saving him. To be sure, David knew that God had saved him from sin, death, and judgment by the grace of God, eternal benefits of belonging to God. But David knew more than that, that Yahweh was his interventionist God, his personal Lord and Saviour. Um, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, uh, they sing a very beautiful love song called Into My Arms. Nick, uh, in the first line of that song, sums up what a lot of people feel about God uh, um, with that first line which begins, I don't believe in an interventionist God. Nick believes that God exists, but can't believe that God breaks into this world to save individuals. In total contrast, David knows from experience that Yahweh is most certainly an interventionist God. And that, for David, Yahweh is his, to use the language of our age, Yahweh is his personal Lord and Saviour. Someone he knows personally, someone who intervenes. And so the key question arising from this text today must truly be, do you know Yahweh? Do you know Yahweh? finally revealed to us, brought fully into full and perfect focus in the face of Jesus of Nazareth, who is the image of the invisible God, the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation of his being. It is impossible to know God except through Jesus, the Son, the personal name of God. 
Is Jesus your interventionist God? Is he your personal Lord and Saviour?